0: Well, hello there little masters, and welcome to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight, Sean and I are hosting a long-expected party with a lot of special
1: guests. Not quite as big as a Baggins birthday party, though. We've got enough technical issues with 10 to 12.
0: Forget 12 dozen. But uh, west <laughs> to
1: how, my friends. I'm Sean A gross Marchese. of
0: listeners. We're lucky if we have a gross of listeners, <laughs> actually. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, we have a couple of gross hosts, so there's that. Oh, well played. Uh, west to how, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real life Lord of the Mark. And I'm here with the man of the West, the Bob to my knob. I think it was
0: the other way last time. Alan Sisto. I think it was. Well, thank you, Sean. Folks, tonight we are proud and grateful to be able to welcome several of our patrons to the old Inn of Brie, where you're about to hear us once again put our reputations on the line for some unscripted Q&A. We have some guests Such online with us. Such as they are. Such as they are. I know, exactly. I was going to put air quotes around that. But. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, we have some guests online with us, and we've asked them to come with some of their very best questions. We have no idea what they're going to ask us, so Sean and I are going to be answering their questions on the fly as best we can in our third Questions After Nightfall episode. And in
1: case you've forgotten why we call it that, remember old Harry Goatleaf, the gatekeeper in Bree, who says, It's my business to ask questions after nightfall. Well, tonight, it's our guest's business to ask us questions after nightfall, and it's our business to answer them. And correctly, if at all possible. So (laughs)
0: uh, as with previous questions after... That's the
1: trick. That is
0: the trick. As with uh, previous questions after nightfall episodes, aside from edits for coughs or time spent flipping through pages while we look for an answer, we're going to be presenting this as it was recorded live. So everything you hear in this show will have been recorded during this session. And if you'd like to get in on the next one, go check out our
1: Patreon page at patreon.com prancingponypod. Mm-hmm. We'll be doing questions after nightfall episodes about every three months, and we'll yep. be inviting patrons at the Elrond's
0: Honorarium tier and higher to join us. It's just one of the many ways we're saying thank you to our patrons, giving them the opportunity to humiliate us publicly. Or... You know, if they're nicer, just ask questions (laughs) to get to know us, your moderately entertaining hosts, a little bit better. That's right.
1: But before we jump into that, we've got one little housekeeping item, uh, sort of a correction. Amendment, amendment, addendum. a, A counterpoint. Let's call it a counterpoint. Let's do that. Uh, Back in episode 84, we talked about Thorne's harsh words on the mountain when he discovered Bilbo had handed over the Arkenstone to Bard and the Elven King. Mm -hmm. Remember the uh, take him if you wish
0: him to live and no friendship of mine goes with him. Oh, I definitely remember that. And as our listeners may recall, we were pretty critical of Thorne for this. We called him childish. I think I said it was like a Uh, (laughs) five-year-old. And we accused him of capriciously throwing away his friendship with Bilbo like it was meaningless. That's right. But one of our listeners, Joe Hoffman, who blogs about Tolkien and
1: lots of other interesting things at his blog, Idiosophy, and that's Mm -hmm. idiosophy.com. We'll put a link to that up on our show notes. Sure. Uh, He thinks we missed the gravity of that statement, Um, so much so that he actually wrote a blog post on June 2nd called The Friendship of Kings as a rebuttal to our position
0: on that. (laughs) Uh, We should be used to this by now. Uh, He shared a story about Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire, whose friendship was so important to Roman officials that when one of the provincial governors broke trust with him, all Augustus had to do was say publicly, that man is no longer my friend. The governor was so shamed by the pronouncement and probably you know, fearful for his political future that he took his own life rather than live with the shame of falling from Augustus' friendship. Yep, that's
1: right. And Joe actually went on to observe that uh, lots of old English kennings for king have the word friend in them. Mm -hmm. Um, And also that a a certain fellow named Peregrine Took proclaimed himself as king's friend to some ruffians during the scouring of the shire. And that actually had a pretty significant effect on them. It actually made them give way.
0: That's right. Uh, In
1: in other words, Joe says Tolkien knew exactly what a king's friendship is worth, and we shouldn't be so quick to make light of Thorin's uh,
0: unfriending of Bilbo. (laughs) A very good point. Well, that is an excellent, uh, excellent point, Joe, and we appreciate it. So consider us illuminated. And let me add in words that Caesar Augustus would understand, Nostra Culpa. There you go. Well, now, without further ado, why don't we go and introduce the folks joining us? I'm going to unmute each of you in order so that you can say hi to your fellow podcast listeners. Go ahead and let them know your name and uh, where you're joining us from tonight.
2: Christopher. Hi, I'm
0: Christopher, and I'm from Skokie, Illinois. Very good. Thanks, Christopher. Next up is Sherat.
2: Hi, I'm Sherat, and I'm from uh, Gatesburg, Maryland. Very good.
0: And joining us, I guess, this is your third Q&A, right?
2: Third Q&A, that's right.
0: Wow, my goodness. In fact, that's probably something we should be asking folks to include, like how many times have they joined us or are they new to the show? So That's a good idea, yeah. Yeah. Next up, James. Uh, hi, I'm James. I'm from uh, Gloucester, Virginia. And how many? this is your second one, right? Uh, yes, this is my second time here. Very good. Next up is Emily.
3: Hi, I'm Emily, and I am seething here in Austin, Texas, Uh, and um, I might have joined Patreon simply for the fact that I would be able to perhaps come here and uh, chat with you and uh, become somewhat famous. (laughs) So, you know, do it.
0: Ride our coattails, Emily. That's <laughs> our. That's right. There you go. Those are very small coattails, so hang on tight. <laughs> All right, uh, Carolyn.
3: Hi,
4: I'm Carolyn, and I'm right now in San Antonio, Texas. Oh wow, we got another another in yeah, Texas. A tonight. lot of
0: people in Texas tonight. I guess so. And next up is Tamsin.
5: Hi, um, I'm Tamsin Barlow, and I'm from Rochester, Minnesota, and. You think this would be easier because I've had so many imaginary conversations with you guys as I listened to the podcast. Yeah. I thought, oh, this is going to be a breeze.
1: You've had several real conversations with us, too, just not voice to voice. Yeah,
5: just not voice to voice. So,
0: <laughs> Well, we're glad you could join us tonight. Tim, you're next up.
6: Uh, Tim here in Wisconsin. Uh, glad to be on the show again. That's right.
0: We have had you on before. I think you missed the last one, but you were on the first time around. Definitely. All right. And last up
7: is Mark. Hello, Alan. Hello, Sean. Hello, everyone else. Hi, this is Mark uh, dialing in from San Antonio and uh, thrilled to be here. Thanks.
3: Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, why don't we go ahead and jump into your questions? So several of you have already raised your hands. looks like first up we've got Emily. So. Excellent. Go right ahead.
3: Oh, so much pressure. I have to stump you guys. Um, (laughs) <laughs>
1: you
0: can give us an easy one you yeah that's right that, that is, is an option this is a universe in which that is a possibility
1: sure,
3: that's an option <clears throat> <laughs> so um i've been thinking actually a, a lot i think the the well I started at the beginning of the podcast uh listening and uh, at that very first episode um there was a big discussion about how uh there's not allegory Tolkien said oh no allegory it's it's the 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 wars in in my novels are not world war one uh, the main exception for that is uh, is the story of his love of Edith and uh, the Baron and Luthian story. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, they they have Baron and Luthian on their graves. So <laughs> yes, clearly, yeah, this is more than just a casual allegory. Um, so I was looking into it a little bit, and I saw. I was thinking, well, so. Other than the fact that she danced for him and he loved her very much, well, how th- these huge things that are going on with Baron and Luthien, how do they translate, or how does the the, the Edith and 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 J.R. Mm-hmm. story translate into Baron and Luthien? and um i noticed a couple things about about Luthien's life that we could look at uh she was a protestant her father disapproved of their their union uh rather than getting her father's approval uh the, um jr just uh just up and married her after after waiting for a while but uh, i was thinking about the the elfish um loss of the serial longevity loss, kind of loss of that elfishness. Um, Hmm. And, and I saw that, um, that Edith had uh, converted to Catholicism and that was a huge thing. And so is, and so maybe this is her loss, right. Hmm. Hmm. Um, But where do we see kind of a comparable uh, connection Oh, uh, with with Baron.
0: Oh, I wow. see. If if she's Luthien, how is yeah. in, in what way is how he Baron?
3: How is he Baron? Yep.
0: Mm. Hmm. Wow. That is an, an amazingly good question. Emily. Um, <laughs> that is a really good one. So we're going to skip to the next one. No, just <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Sean, what's your initial thought? I think
1: my initial thought is because I actually did some thinking about this when I read the the New Baron and Luthien volume last yeah. year, yeah. and uh, I don't know that I have a good answer, but I can I can kind of you know fumble around a little bit and we'll see what we come up with. Um, I think that uh, there was in addition to um, to the you know sort of Edith's father as Thingol. I think just the um, the. The whole quest of the Silmaril, Beren going on, Beren accepting the quest of the Silmaril. I think you could probably see a parallel in, uh, in uh, Father Francis Morgan's uh, mm, forbidding mm-hmm. of him, uh, you know, courting a Protestant. Um, he had his own hoops that he needed to jump through to uh, to satisfy his own guardian, um, and and I think he really just didn't. I think he just waited until he was eighteen, and I, I believe he actually proposed to her right as soon as he was of age. Um, so yeah, so there's that. Um, but I think he felt like he had his own his own hoops to jump through. Maybe that was sort of his own quest of the Silmaril. Hmm. Um, okay. In terms of something larger than that, uh, we might be able to say that maybe he felt that his relationship with uh, with Edith ennobled him uh, in a way. You know that, that sort of elvish ennoblement that um, that is sort of a theme throughout the legendarium. Um, but I don't know. I that's that's a really
0: really interesting and tough one that is a tough one i don't know i mean i i I don't know how much he saw himself as baron as much as he saw her as luthien i mean i if, if there's a possibility to make one you know to, to make her luthien without him making him necessarily baron but the only thing maybe maybe it's just the the utter ordinariness of it yeah
1: yeah of him you maybe uh the yeah the idea that humanity versus the guy over- you know yeah yeah you know and she was um you know, he he saw her as something greater than so himself. So far above, yeah. Um, so far above. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, certainly, there's a lot of parallels with her and Luthien. Yes, you know, there's that's true. The dancing in the hemlocks, and you know, all that stuff. Um, but maybe it is just the the complete ordinariness of Baron that we're meant to see. Um, Baron was an orphan, so there's also that. Um, Baron's father was was gone. Um, his mother was gone. And he was just sort of wandering in the woods when he found her. Um, Maybe, although he's never actually put anything in writing about how that paralleled his own life, maybe we can just see sort of what his mindset was Mm. when he met her as a very young man. And obviously, uh, she had an effect on him because he he spent years pursuing her or wanting to pursue her. Yeah. And then married her as soon as he could. And then they spent the rest of their lives together. So. I don't know if I can if I can point to any specific events, but I, I definitely think that the story teaches us something about how he felt about her and how he oh, yeah. felt about himself.
0: That's there's absolutely no doubting that the, the level of commitment. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, as for uh, Luthien's fate after death um, and the you know the potential loss as she converted from Protestantism to Catholicism,
0: that's interesting. I have um, never I, thought of it I w- from that
1: perspective. I have I've to admit. never ever thought of it that way,
0: and I don't know that he uh, would because I, I think he would see that as being you know c- converting from. You know a false religion to a true one i mean he he had no there's there was no love lost between him and lewis for example and the fact that lewis when he converted to Christianity, chose to become Anglican. Um,
1: that's true, but but also remember that he saw Luthien's death and her her fate, you know, escaping from the circles. That's true of the world. as a that benefit. Was, that was a release from bondage. Ooh, so maybe, it actually was a good thing maybe. for her to be released beyond the circles of the world. So maybe there is okay. There is something of that she found there
0: Catholicism. Might be.
2: She found the true path. Well,
0: you know, we've uh, one of our listeners actually wanted to pipe in here. Maybe give us a little uh, little help, Sharat. What do you have to say on this one?
2: So yeah, I just wanted to chime in and say uh you know it was really interesting hearing emily go through the kind of parallels that she'd found in edith's life and and in luthien's story but i don't know that the whole conceit is as the the metaphor is as worked over to to be an allegory so in an allegory like we have to be able to map everything back to Some other idea that we can extricate out of it, right? And although
1: everything has to have a one-to-one correspondence, exactly. And I'm
2: although Tolkien certainly might have drawn on on those circumstances to inspire those parts of the story. I'm not sure that makes it uh, an allegorical moment in his in his legendarium.
0: That's fair. That's fair. And
2: maybe
1: that is, and maybe that is part of it too. Is he? You know, Tolkien always stressed. Applicability,
0: not allegory. There are there
1: are individual moments of symbolism, and there are degrees of that. I mean, the the more
0: applicable something is, the closer to allegory it seems to be. Uh, Yeah, Emily, I'm going to go and unmute you. Have we uh, come close at all to answering what you've uh, what you proposed to us?
3: Uh, yes. I was just curious what you would have to say. And I, I can definitely hear what Sharat was saying, uh, about whether, is it an, is it a one for one allegory or not? Uh, the re the only reason I looked at this like this is because, is because Tolkien himself said, you know, she was my Luthian, uh, and they did put, he did put the, the, the names on the gravestones. And it mm-hmm. seems, it just seems like oh, yeah. he said, no, 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 this doesn't happen. Well, except for here, except for this. So, yeah. And
0: there are a few other things where he, you know would would point out like the uh the um, well there's things like the dead marches things like that, the land that right, right, in right clearly front of, symbolic of, yeah, of, of, of the uh, trench warfare know, the and the, the battle of the Somme yeah. with all the pockmarked yeah. artillery but landings and yeah.
1: I I do think that Baron and Luthien probably has more points of comparison even if it doesn't rise to the level of straight allegory. Sure. I think there's there are a lot of points that you can that you can connect. Mm-hmm. But uh, but maybe maybe that's exactly why he was warning us not to look too deep for allegory, mm. because then we start, you know...
0: We then we want to find allegories questions. everywhere. It's true. Yeah. That's just how we work. That was an excellent question, Emily. Thank you so much. Uh, Sean, I know you saw the, all the hands go up. Who was, who was the next one in line? Well, I think our next one up is Tamsin. All right. Well, let's go ahead and unmute you, Tamsin. Welcome. Hi. Hello.
5: Hi. First of all, thank you for doing this. I just... I wish we could meet all of of everybody in the chat room. Oh, would that be fun? I just think we would be fast friends, all of us, if we could just meet each other. But this is so wonderful in this virtual world to find our tribe, right?
0: Yes, it is. Definitely.
5: Um, The question is, um, I need a little bit of a preface for it. So I think we can agree that the Lord of the Rings is universal in its appeal. And so whether Mm -hmm. you're a Buddhist or a Christian or agnostic, atheist, we all share these values that we find in these books. Yes. And we know that Tolkien was a devout Catholic, but when I read Lord of the Rings for the first time 42 years ago, I know, I'm so old.
0: <laughs> you were like three when you read it? I'm I impressed. Was so,
5: I'm so much older than everybody else. Anyway, when I read it 42 years ago, I didn't know that he was devout. Um, mm. I thought it was just a heartbreakingly sad and absolutely wonderful story. And yeah. I may have been a dummy, but I didn't think it was an obviously Christian book like Lion, Watch, in the Wardrobe. Which, no,
0: no, right, which is a blatant which, allegory. Yeah, as right. soon as I was reading right. that, yeah. I was super yeah.
5: disappointed. That, as I slowly, It slowly dawned on me that, hey, this is an allegory. Aslan is ah. Jesus. Yeah. And,
1: well, and Tolkien had the same complaint. Yeah, he, I felt, I he felt like, like it so was that a, in your face. Yeah. I felt
5: like it was being bullied, yeah. right? Anyway, so uh, uh, I love C.S. Lewis aside. Um, yes. But the Lord of the Rings doesn't seem an overtly religious work, although I have found it to be a book that I constantly return to for consolation and inspiration Mm -hmm. and courage as one Mm -hmm. would do in the scriptures. And so anyway, I was reminded recently of a quote I had heard a long time ago in one of the letters Tolkien wrote where he says that the books were fundamentally religious and a Catholic work. And so I was wondering, in what ways is this a fundamentally Mm -hmm. religious work or a moral work? Because It's hidden. I mean, it's kind of hidden. Oh yeah, it's not obvious. So
0: that's a good question. How does he imbue this
5: book with his faith? I mean, does he dis? What What does he consider the highest good or the greatest evils or the moral compass of the book?
0: That is an excellent question. Um, You know, I I think one thing we've learned over the course of our you know two and a half years of doing the show is that with the letters, and I think we have to credit. Dr. Flieger, uh, as well as – who was the other one who, who pointed out? It might have been John Garth. Uh, it might have been uh, Professor Drought. I believe was it, was it, I believe John Garth and Michael Drought both, both mentioned. That when it, it comes to, to the letters, you really have to take into consideration his audience. Uh, and in that particular letter, uh, when he talked about it being a fundamentally Christian work or a fundamentally Catholic work, I believe he said, um, uh, he was speaking to the owner of a Catholic bookstore who had written – uh, I'm trying to find the
1: letter right now. Actually, <laughs> he, it was that was the the Peter Hastings had written to him, and Hastings, he had that's right. a lot of theological questions. And I think he actually even asked some questions about things like um, Elvish, Elvish immortality yeah. and the suggestion of reincarnation and things like that. And and I think that there was an element of you know how how do you write this stuff if you are a Catholic? Right. And I think yeah, that's I think it was he was, was concerned about to. the
0: reincarnation. Uh, because Tolkien had mentioned that in a conversation. he'd actually you know mistakenly using the word. used the word reincarnation, which we now understand to mean something you know radically different than from what uh, what most people mm-hmm. would mean by that word. Uh, so he talked about in the letter, he that, that the, in fact, by the way, I should also point out that the letter was just a draft, that he did talk about the the book being a fundamentally Christian work or a fundamentally Catholic work. And I'm trying to find the actual, Phrase here, if I can. You have. Your, I have my, um, my books. Your yeah, letters, e-book. But it's a longer letter than I thought it was.
1: I I would also add, while you're looking for that, Alan, that um, Professor Verlin Flieger actually has uh, basically one and a half essays uh, de- devoted to this topic in her new book. <laughs> there would always be a fairy tale. She's um she has some stuff on just the different ways to read the letters, mm-hmm. and also um, she gets specifically into the question of Christian Christianity. In the, in the legendarium.
0: Yeah. Uh, and actually, I'm thinking of two different letters here, uh, now that I think about it. Because that the letter that, that has the quote we're thinking of is not the letter to Peter Hastings. It's actually the letter to Father Robert Murray. But again, same, same idea of recognizing your audience. That was one where Father Robert Murray, close friend of the Tolkien family, had read part of it and had sent uh, Tolkien comments and criticism. Uh, he was the one who compared Galadriel to, vir- to the Virgin Mary and, and all of this kind of stuff. So right, yeah. when he wrote back, Tolkien said, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. That's the quote that I think everybody really has some, you know, it's trying to come to grips with. Well, how is it that if it's if the book isn't even an allegory for Christianity the way, say, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is? Uh, as Tolkien goes on in that letter, he talks about how it, it was unconscious at first. But, in the revision, it was more conscious, and that's specifically why he didn't put in references to anything like real world religion for him that that Christianity and Catholicism element was absorbed into the story, so it's, ah, what would you say, Sean? There's really not any sort of point that you would say, well, that's you know christianity and 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 that's
1: no, I mean. I think I would also point to letter one fifty one where he talks about wanting to create a mythology that has all the the sort of the pagan elements, right. the the many many gods with a little g and all that stuff, but that was and I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but that was uh, compatible mm-hmm. with someone who believes could in the Trinity. Be, yeah, that could be believed so, by somebody who believes in the Trinity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think he's I think he's basically trying to um create all the trappings of a pagan mythology, but still have um have a core that is compatible with Christianity without actually having any specifically Christian elements. Right. Um, right. I would also say when Tolkien says it's a fundamentally Catholic work, I think it just occurred to me as you use that word, Alan, we need to be really mindful mindful. of how Tolkien uses words. And Tolkien knows that the word fundamental etymologically just means at its base. Right. In essence, at deep down... Uh, right, deep down at the yeah. base. And so he could, when he says that, he might mean it very, literal as, very literally as saying, well, I am a Catholic and I started from a Catholic base, but then I, I put other things on top of it
0: mm-hmm.
1: to to make it more applicable to a, a broader worldview. I think yeah. that might be what he means when he says
0: fundamental. Because referencing 151 is important, not only because it's our favorite letter. Of course it is. It was my idea. <laughs> But because he talks about why he didn't make it specifically blatantly Christian. I mean, he, Well, he didn't say that yep. directly, but he pointed out that the fault in the uh, Arthurian mythology was that it was too closely tied to the Christian religion. Right, right. Uh, and that that made it unsuitable for a general mythology for England. So, um, right. But I do see a couple of hands raised, and I want to go ahead and get to uh, Tim and to
6: Christopher. We're going to try Tim first. Tim? Uh, just to extend a little bit of the conversation that you're bringing up. Um, I think about the whole last passages in uh, on fairy stories, and where he discusses the eucatastrophe, yes. um, and he um, he really talks about how the joy that you get out of the you know joyous ending um, comes from a. I think he calls it like a glimpse at the real truth, which in yeah. his mind is the evangelium, the you know the, yeah, the, gospel. the gospels and, mm-hmm. and and so I, I would see in his perspective that whether you as a reader understand or not, you're touching on the truths that he finds foundational to his idea of the gospels. Um, right. Now you may come at your life perspective and completely different tangent than he did. Sure. Um, but um, right. I think he would say, well, you know, from his perspective, you're, you're, you're what you're finding meaningful is the same is, is uh, based on a, a sense of truth that he sees as best defined by the Catholic church. In his right. perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And it's and from his from his mindset that's a universal truth, even if the reader comes from a different perspective. Uh and, right. and therefore it it echoes true uh to everybody, even if they don't share that same worldview. So yeah. That's right. an excellent point. Uh, I'm gonna yeah. go ahead and mute you and unmute Christopher. Christopher, can you hear me?
8: All right. Well, um when I think about this question, the 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 moments from the texts of Earth the rings thing? and even even the Hobbit that come to me are the moments of grace. The moments when a character who in any rational world would, for instance, stab Gollum in the back, (laughs) would, for instance, not be able to overlook the obvious treachery of the creature that just tried to run away even when he said he wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And is able to you know, so Bilbo and Frodo both exhibit these moments of just grace yeah. that is inspiring to mm-hmm. anybody, whether you are of a Christian persuasion or not. These moments that, of, yeah. of forgiveness and rising above and empathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, now I do see him. I do pity him. And, and yeah. if you look later in the Two yeah. Towers, there's that, there's that incredible moment on the stairs of oh, Kiri where yeah. Sam almost gets there. Yeah. Almost. If yep. he had woken fifteen seconds sooner and seen what was yeah. happening, or if he had mm-hmm. woken fifteen seconds later, or something like that, but there's this moment, you know, it's 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 that climactic moment that we all,
0: yeah, it breaks really your heart is. every mm-hmm. time you
8: read it. And and Bilbo and Frodo's grace obviously has this you catastrophic outcome. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
8: Frodo's Frodo's, as you can draw that line more directly, because I suppose Bilbo's. Well, no, because the moment of Bilbo's grace comes after the, you out of Solo and into the assimilation perspective of, of The Hobbit. So, so even then, you're beginning to fill in that backstory, because in the original of chapter five, if I remember correctly, of course, there is no such moment. Right. So all this is a long-winded way of saying, I guess, for me, I, I, I would point to the concept of grace as probably the highest, or one of the highest embodiments, both of Christian faith and of the morality
0: mm.
8: and compassion of these
0: deeply decent characters. That's mm-hmm. some good insight, Christopher. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think so. And
1: I think that's what he means when he says it, it has those values at its core. Right. Without, it doesn't have to get into um, the, you know. Yeah, it doesn't get into doctrinal
0: details. The, or,
1: right. Or, the you know, the, the theological details, the, the metaphysical, con- you know, concerns of, of right. Catholicism. In fact, when he started to lean in that direction later in life, you know, he wrote, he wrote the, uh, the author Beth Finrada Andref, um, which, uh, which is a fascinating work. It's an excellent work. Um, it also represents the, the one time he came really close to having an overt reference to Christianity in the mm-hmm. legendarium. Yeah. And, um, and he actually had some concerns about it. He, he, I think there is something in the notes that says he, he was concerned about making it a parody of Christianity.
0: Yeah. So yeah. he
1: he wanted to avoid. Um. He I think he had multiple reasons for wanting to
0: avoid, um, getting too explicit.
1: Yeah. With, with Christian uh, and then you
0: touched on one there. I think that that innate humility where he he didn't want to be, uh, to, to be seen as even trying to mm-hmm. to to make this point. He, he says that a little bit in the epilogue, uh to, uh, to on fairy stories. He even says that it's a serious and dangerous matter. It is presumptuous of me to touch upon such a theme. So I mean, he knows this is a a, a really um, high risk area, you know, and I'm 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 treading on on thin ice here, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm going to try and do my best. And he does, of course, talk about it at length in uh, that epilogue in uh, you know, On Fairy Stories. Certainly, yeah. well worth reading if that's uh, an area that you are interested in, uh, regardless, again, of your particular perspective. Uh, Tamsin, yep. I'm going to go ahead and unmute you. All yeah. right, fire away.
5: Thank you so much, and I totally agree that it carries universal truths for everybody. I find it oh, yeah. incredibly inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, one more question then: Has it been a guide for you at all?
9: Hmm.
0: I like that. That's a good. <laughs> has it been a, Yeah. You know, I. Wow, Sean, that's a that's a deeply personal question, but it's a good one, and mm-hmm. I think it's well worth asking. I. Yeah. I can start out and say, of course, that it 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 does. I mean, I share. Uh, a, a similar, if not identical, worldview to, uh, to Professor Tolkien in that case. So for me, it was easy to kind of see those themes and to be inspired. For me, realizing the, the nature of a eucatastrophe, the nature of the sovereignty of God, those are the kinds of things that it really uh, helped me to, to, to think on, to consider more closely, um, and, and realizing that the paradox between free will and the music, if you were, if you want to call it that, uh, I think that really is something that I've taken a lot of inspiration from. Uh, but of course, you know that's because I share that worldview. Now, Sean, I know you don't, but mm-hmm. you've still drawn plenty of inspiration from this. What, Absolutely. Uh, what say you? Yeah, I mean, as a person who does come at it from a, a
1: different worldview from Tolkien's, um, I still find that there is a there's a there's a moral core there that, mm, yes. that I share. Um, there is a lot there that I share and I do draw uh, a great deal of inspiration from even some of Tolkien's most overtly religious figures, like uh, a certain mariner with a star on his brow, um, <laughs> who travels to the undying yeah. lands. Uh, that, the, 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 the story of hope, uh, that's there is, yes. uh, is profoundly inspirational to me. Um, yeah. so much of, of Frodo's journey. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some there are definitely some some medieval, uh, let's say, medieval Christian allegorical references. Mm-hmm. Although the story itself is not allegory, I think Tolkien was referencing some some medieval yeah. uh, Christian allegories in his in what he wrote of Frodo's journey. Um, yeah,
0: you're thinking there's a little bit of Pilgrim's Progress in Pilgrim's there, Pilgrim's Progress yeah. and things like that. Yep, exactly.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so I think uh, th- I definitely draw a lot of inspiration from from that and. Um, just in general, I think there is a lot in Tolkien's characters and in the the values that, that Tolkien uh, puts into his work that I think we can all learn from. I and, agree. And these are – I say sometimes these are the stories that I want to tell my kids and that I want my kids to learn from. Yeah. So, um, so there's definitely an element of that there. Wholeheartedly. Good stuff. Cool. Thank you, Tamson. Well,
0: that was an excellent question, Tamson. Thank you for, for asking something that really makes us ponder uh, and I hope also makes the rest of our listeners ponder as well. Uh, Sean, do you happen to recall the third hand that was raised? Yes.
2: Next up, we've got
0: Sharad. Sharat.
2: So I just wanted to tack on one thing to Tamson's question that oh, I sure. found interesting. Oh sure, please do. Years ago, I did a an independent study in my senior year uh, of undergrad, uh, trying to write about how on fairy stories was a way to understand Tolkien's work. That
3: mm-hmm. Tolkien
2: was the best way. Tolkien's own critical writing was the best way to understand him. Um, Yes. And one of the the sources I came across was this book by a scholar named Nicholas Boyle, I believe. Uh, Hmm. And the book was called Sacred and Secular Scriptures. Oh, okay. And one of the things Hmm. Dr. Boyle talks about is how one of the things that makes uh, Lord of the Rings a fundamentally Catholic work is those pagan elements you're referencing because it's with the the protestant uh, with the anglican church's birth that the fairies left english life uh, there's there's mm. lots of references in early modern english literature where that's where fairies start to disappear from the countryside that's where that fear comes from
0: interesting when when catholicism mm-hmm. goes away and and
2: exactly because medieval christianity medieval islam uh, all of them were quite happy to have genies and and, and pagan Uh, Beliefs. That's true. Right. Kind of a they were assimilated. Secretistic approach to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, So, anyways, (laughs)
1: that's an interesting insight. Yeah, that that is interesting. And you know, I think one more thing that I I think about as you say that, Sherat, is um, you know the idea that Tolkien was uh, heavily influenced by Beowulf, and Beowulf was a poem that is about pagans, Mm -hmm. but that is written by a Christian poet. Right. Exactly. And 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 much much of the. much of the the way that story is presented by the poet is um, it, it is looking through a Christian lens on that on that pagan world, mm-hmm. and so there's um, I think the poet, generally speaking, avoids um, any judgment of the characters, and I think Tolkien is trying to do the same thing. I think he's that that could very well have been his primary inspiration for wanting to create um, a, a, a pre-Christian secondary world. Right, I think pre-Christian is the best way to say it, as opposed to pagan um, when we're talking about Middle Earth, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have anything else to say on it. But as you said that, Sherrod, I, I thought of that, I think, just because I've been reading uh, some of Tom Shippey's stuff. And he's um, he talks a lot about the Beowulf stuff.
2: Yeah, and it's it's cool because Dr. Boyle came upon that point without even really considering uh, Tolkien's views on Beowulf, um, mm, yeah. which is cool. But anyways, my, my question comes from <laughs> a passage at the end of Appendix A. Um, it's about, okay. uh, you know, Gimli going off into the West with Legolas. Um I'll just go ahead and read that that very last paragraph in Appendix A. We have heard tell that Legolas took Gimli Gloin's son with him because of their great friendship, greater than any that has been between elf and dwarf. If this is true, then it is strange indeed that a dwarf should be willing to leave Middle-earth for any love, or Hmm. that the Eldar should receive him, or that the lords of the West should permit it. But it is said that Gimli went also out of desire to see again the beauty of Galadriel, and it may mm-hmm. be that she, being mighty among the Eldar, obtained this grace for him. More cannot be said of this matter. So, I guess my question is uh, every other situation in which Luthien or, um, oh God, Arwen, Arwen. Uh, get, give up their serial longevity or uh, Tour ends up in, in Valinor, uh, I think. Mm mm-hmm. Well, you, we think sure. he what does, we decided right? about We, we that. think yeah. yeah. some <laughs> saying uh, that yeah. he has been counted <laughs> among the elves, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Uh, there seems to be an element uh, where it's about marriage, and in Gimli's mm, mm-hmm. case, uh, it's not right. There is no relationship, mm. and it's so interesting to see the the suppositions that are there. So dwarves are supposedly love Middle Earth so much that they shouldn't want to. Why leave would they it. leave? Right. Right. And. Why would the Eldar let Gimli stay on Tol Arisaia? Uh Yeah. And then. Talk about one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> Mostly to stick it to Feanor, I think. <laughs> Pretty
0: much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then. <laughs> see, he got some of her hair. <laughs> That's right. And you're still stuck in Mandos. So right.
2: I, I guess uh, my question was, why do you think Gimli gets this special permission from mm. the Eldar? Uh, I mean, from the that from the Valar, right? Good question.
0: Um, wow, that is a, that is an interesting question. I think, I think the text is hinting at Galadriel being the cause, of course, or being the the um, the authority that that grants this somehow, or that persuades the Valar. And I, I would imagine that's, that's what definitely to happen. a suggestive it may be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, the the Valar would have had the ultimate decision making ability here, so it would have been they decided based on Galadriel's plea, right? Uh, and and perhaps this was just. Um, You know, her way of of trying to begin to to reset or refresh uh, dwarven-elven relationships. You know, I I think there's this acknowledgement that Legolas and Gimli had such a close friendship uh, that, you know, there's no reason why the elves and the dwarves couldn't Kind of start over, you know. They had they had a pretty terrible start, <laughs> as you remember. Some dwarves were were hunted by the elves until they started talking. And I oh oh that oh, you're everybody always brings
1: up the petty dwarves, the hunting of the petty
0: dwarves. <laughs> Let it rest, folks. Uh, it was thousands of years. It ago. was, it was. But um, you know, the dwarves and the elves have always had some issues. You know, Thingol, I'm sure, wouldn't have really liked to see a dwarf, <laughs> Tolasia, any more than than Feanor would. Uh, no. Just keep the knives away from him. That's that's all. Just keep the yep. knives away. Um, but I think that there may be something there. That this is you know a, a, an attempt to try to unify, uh, to, to bring some unity to elves and dwarves. Maybe I don't know. That's one thing I'm thinking. What about you? I that's that's a better answer than
1: anything I can come up with. I um, <laughs> I mean it it does say you know it was a, their friendship was greater than any that has been between elf and dwarf. I think maybe the the Valar were willing to reward that. Yeah. Um, and and, yeah, and I think hurt. that that's that's the better that's the the best reason I can come up with for why the Valar would would, would reward that is because it is it's an example uh, yeah. for you know elf dwarf relations yes you know going forward um, good point I mean. You'd think the fact that he that he was part of the fellowship might have something to do with it, too. But then not everybody who was in the fellowship got that same grace. So, no, I don't think that's that that's definitely not the whole story, even if it was a factor.
0: No. And of course, we also have to remember that just like the other members of the fellowship that did make it there, that is to say, the other uh, mortal members of the fellowship. So Bilbo, I'm sorry, Frodo and Sam, uh, mm-hmm. Gimli would have eventually died. You know, he right. still would have ended up in, in the, the halls of mandas that are set apart for the, the children Pretty of vale. uh right. so, so there is that. I mean, we, we can't think that that means that he was granted immortality. He was just granted right. that he could spend the rest of his uh, you know mortal existence, which would now be brief, <laughs> uh, in Doloresia. Yeah. So, right. yeah, you know, I, I think, though, you also hit on something. A... Go ahead, I'm sorry. I think
1: that's a good answer, though. I mean, I, I think yeah. your
0: answer is a really good one. But go ahead. I think, that, I think that might work. And then I think there's also an element of this appreciation for a a pure platonic love. The love that he had for Galadriel was—it transcended the whole elf dwarf thing first. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. and that goes back to my first suggestion, perhaps, is for a reason. But I think also there's this element of of rewarding a a, a pure love that's a noble love. And maybe there's something there. I don't know. Because, you know, you talked about the marriage yeah. thing and how— yeah. You know, yeah, Luthien and Arwen, and and their fates get you know different, and it's because of their relationships. But but those are those are romantic relationships, and this is different. And I think uh, right. maybe it's the the recognition that this kind of love is no less valid than that kind of love. So I like that. I think that's a I think that's a good answer. Well, thank you. <laughs> We've got a couple of hands popped up here, uh, Tim. We're going to go ahead and get to you first, Tim.
6: Um, just what you were talking about also made me think of a foreshadowing potentially of the end of times when there was this sort of questionable nature of, are the dwarves going to play a role in the final phase with uh, the, you know, the end of, of time with, you know, in, in as far as their relationship with the music um, it just seemed like it might also be a bit of a foreshadowing that, that the dwarves are going to be a part of the stands of the music, I guess, for yeah, better yeah. words, for lack of better words.
0: <laughs> oh, that's some, that's some good insight too, no doubt. Uh, and then Emily, I'm going to go ahead and unmute you next.
3: Um, we were talking in the chat, um, Tamsin, yeah. Tamsin and I, uh, ab- about this idea of, um, uh, of relationship and how, uh, Legolas and Gimli are, are not romantically involved, but I think it is, I think it is the relationship between the two of them. That's exceptional. Yes. Gimli is taken with Galadriel more than taken with Galadriel, obviously. Um, yeah. But it's, mm-hmm. it's and and it, that got me thinking about how and, and Tamsin had said, um, maybe being part of community or marriage or friendship is key to this ennoblement, mm-hmm. uh, based on love, whether it's platonic or erotic. And it seems like yes, the enob- ennoblement of all Iluputar's children is not through their own needs, but through relationships with others. And then I started thinking, mm-hmm. most of most of the people who succeed, the people who do well, that I've come across in the legendarium do well, not on their own, but because they are with other people, they are in fellowship Mm -hmm, with others.
1: Yes, absolutely. Obviously it's
3: Frodo and Sam. And then we have uh, Legolas and Gimli, Mm -hmm. um, Aragorn with them as well. Um, Turin and Beleg. And oh, who, wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, There's
1: always well, one so there's that always. doesn't fit Turin, the
3: rule. Turin? No. no. He actually right. just well. goes it off and well for, doesn't work it. worked well for it. Turin.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, didn't, it didn't work yeah, great until, for Beleg. He,
3: right, and until Beleg went away, and and the people or the, yeah. the characters that go off and try to do things on their own and, and do things become ennobled through their their own power, hmm. Turin and, and Feanor, um, they, they don't succeed. And by the way, mm. I am, I am planning on making you guys a, a Feanor, um, uh, <laughs> pinata. pinata. <laughs> yeah. Oh,
1: thank you. Oh,
0: thank you so much. <laughs> oh, that is phenomenal. I love that. You that's know how awesome. much I want that. Uh, but, you know, that's great.
1: <laughs> I want to respond to that because I have, um, for a long time now, I've been thinking about. Um, I think everybody who listens to the show knows that I I'm, I love the theme of ennoblement. Yes, and we we always hear about it in in reference to you know the children that come from Baron and Luthien or mm. from Tuor and Nidril yeah um Aragorn and Arwen, but there there is an element of ennoblement through just contact yeah. with the superior race that happens again and again throughout the legendarium. The first thing that happened to ennoble men when they came into the West was, Finrod. was not Baron marrying Luthien. Yeah. It was Finrod.
3: Singing uh, to know, him. Yeah. meeting,
1: meeting with Beor's people. Absolutely. And if you go back farther than that, that the first thing that ennobled the Eldar was contact with Oromë mm-hmm. when he first found them and brought them into the West. It's absolutely um, true. Long before, you know, Elway ever, ever met Melian. So uh, I do think that there is an, there's an element of ennoblement just by contact, just by um, friendship and fellowship with mm-hmm. others. And, um, and that, it could be that, that Gimli, Gimli going with with Legolas and and being invited at the invitation of Galadriel, if you want to put it that way. Sure. Uh, maybe it is a way of showing that dwarves get get to dwarves be a noble get that too. too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's some really good insight, and it speaks to the converse of something we talked about very early on. I want to say episode five when we talked about the Ainulindale and the sins of Melkor. What was the fourth mm-hmm. sin of Melkor? Was this self isolation, withdrawal from community. And it really is. This is the and converse of that, isn't it? it? It is. And I have to say that I, I
1: also just saw Tamson type that in the chat. So I want to give her oh, credit for she, bringing that up at the same time as you There did. we
0: go. Considers isolation so. one of the greatest people. <laughs> uh, see, I can't see the chat because re- my, my, yeah. my browser window not. <laughs> I have to scroll down. But I was just <laughs> listening to that the other day, um, not, not because I habitually listen to our our episodes, but because I wanted to hear the difference in improvement between <laughs> first season and second season, <laughs> kind of from a scientific perspective, but I'm listening to episode five going, wow, people listen to us. I, I'm I just
1: imagine you sitting in your hot tub at home, listening to old episodes of the Prancing 20 podcast,
0: thinking this is the life. <laughs> I need to I need to disabuse you of that particular notion, son. <laughs> there is no hot tub around here. The only hot tub is this dry sauna. I'm sitting in called a booth, but anyway, yeah, no kidding, uh, Sean. Do you remember the next hand that we saw was it, I, the the next one that I've got on my list is Carolyn. Carolyn, yeah, Carolyn. Let's see if you're still able to hear us and speak to us. Can you?
4: Okay, yes, I, I do have a question. Okay, um, and um, I was re-listening to uh, an episode, the end of an episode, and I believe it was Maya from Michigan asked you a question regarding uh, singing in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Yes. And I was, uh, I, I thought rather deeply, well, for me, um, about that. <laughs> and, you know, singing, you know, is the world started with singing. Mm-hmm. And so it's such a fundamental thing. And then I remembered that in, uh, when they met Tom Bombadil, Uh, the guests became suddenly aware that they were singing merrily as if it was easier and more natural than talking.
1: Mm -hmm. Right.
4: And uh, I just, uh, I was just, I was so glad that she asked that question because I, I thought and thought and thought about that. And every time I thought about it, I thought, I think of, you know, another way that, you know, your responses uh, just were reaffirmed that, you know, singing is central And it's not strange that you could, uh, you know, have Aragorn and Legolas singing a, you know, dirge uh, for Boromir that 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 fits perfectly with that world.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, Carolyn. So I'll I'll just go ahead and recap for for the folks who can't hear you. Um, So basically, Carolyn's question is about a question we got in the mailbag from Maya a few episodes ago, Maya in Michigan, um, uh-huh. about singing in The Hobbit oh, and Lord yeah, of the yes. Rings. And the question of, you know, do, is this a world where uh, People spontaneous spontaneously, singing just yeah. happens?
0: Yeah. Oh, let me and, sing um, a song about Boromir, who has right, just died. Right. Yeah.
1: Right, exactly. And um, and Carolyn just observed, you know, this is a world that was created through song. Yep. Going all the way back to the Um She also observed uh, the fact that uh, in in the the passage uh, in the Tom Bombadil chapter, when the hobbits are are with Tom, suddenly they find themselves just slipping into singing because singing becomes more natural mm. than than speaking
0: because of Tom and who
1: speaks in because, song essentially, yeah, right, right, and so it's just you know sort of a a comment, um, you know, on the fact that this is a a world that is just rich in song. It was created mm-hmm. through song. Um, song does happen naturally in this world. And so it, it does seem like the kind of place where, sure, Aragorn and Legolas could yeah. uh, just suddenly sing a, a dirge to remember Boromir. Yeah. Um, it's just natural because it's
0: part of the fabric of creation. That's a really good insight, Carolyn. I mean, the, the thing is, yeah, I mean, song is part and parcel of the world of Arda because it's, it's made from song. And, and so is the history of Arda made from song. So unlike our world, where it really does seem impractical to think that a couple of guys would just break out in a, a dirge, um, it, it's a lot more possible in in Tolkien's world. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think either of us touched on that uh, when we were answering Maya's question. But boy, I don't think we did. I
1: think we talked a lot about medieval yeah you know, yeah medieval, medieval literary tradition and
0: things like that. Yeah, and, and the idea that you know songs lasted longer. Uh, and, you know, that is to say a song was in the popular consciousness for, you know, decades rather than, you know, right. two weeks. Weeks, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it, you know, there was probably a standard tune that you wrote to uh, for this yeah. kind of occasion, um, you know, followed a particular formula. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. I don't think we talked about the fact that, hey, uh, anybody thinking about this, the whole world is made from music. So, mm-hmm. yeah, probably singing. Yeah, it, it does it does make a lot of sense, yeah. That is a very good point. All right, well, next up is Christopher. Christopher, can you hear me? I can. I hope you can hear me as well. All right, fire away, sir. Okay,
8: so uh, I, I want to go back to a couple episodes ago. Um, uh-huh. So this is relatively recent history. When you were talking oh, about. Good, I might remember it then. <laughs> we might actually remember. Yeah. <laughs> when you were talking about um, the resolution Bilbo finds between the, the Baggins and the Took half his personality. Mm-hmm. I am not gonna get this exactly right, but you, you seem to be characterizing the took half as sort of courage and, 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 and the baggins half as wisdom. And the took half as courage makes you know, that's that's you know, of course that's mm-hmm. very easy. That's it's very easy to draw that out with the spiders and, and, and you know, him coming into his own in chapter five and all all, all those yeah. all places. The... Now I, I would like it if you would spend some time. Um, really focusing on the wisdom half of this as hmm. exemplified back in, uh part of his personality. Oh, inside. Now, the reason mm-hmm. I say that is because it's very easy and I, and I, and I think I may have I, I may have fallen prey to this tendency, it's very easy to see, see the, the fussiness, oh, the, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the, the 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 rigidity, the <laughs> yes, the, the you know the the business manner, if you will. And and very much right. so yeah. So yeah. if you, if if you would would you take some time and talk about what is the wisdom of the Baggins, uh, the Baggins half other than, you know, these, these sayings of the amazingly well-thought uh, Bungo? <laughs> <laughs>
6: well,
0: you just answered the question. That, that's what I was going to answer. Yeah. But OK, that, well, that's a good question. Um I've I've got a little bit I've got a little bit on this. Before um, you do, I want to just kind of frame the question a little bit. Not not so much frame sure. the question, because the question was framed fine, but I want to frame our, our initial answer. Um you know, we were we were trying to draw that from from Thorin's deathbed scene. And it was when he talked about courage and wisdom blended in measure. So it's it may not be a perfect fit in that sense. I mean uh, I think there is a lot of wisdom in the bag inside, and sometimes not so much wisdom in the Tuke side. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's clear, um, but I I just want to—he's the original fool of a Tuke, exactly. Uh, but I do want to say that that's where we got that from. It might have been, you know, had Thorin said courage and comfort, you know, that might have been a a, a more easy connection to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the courage and wisdom uh, we just kind of leapt straight from that to Took and Baggins and analogized those. There there are plenty of wisdom bits, though, though. And that's where I'm going to go ahead and let you jump in, Sean. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No,
1: that's okay. And I think we actually, um, although folks haven't heard it as of recording tonight, um, we actually did touch on this in episode 87 a little bit. So, so by the time this comes out, um, folks will have had a chance to hear us talk a little bit about the balance between Tuke and Baggins. Yeah, yeah, and one of the things that we we landed on is um, the Baggins is um, a bit more careful. Yes, much more careful. Um, Risk averse. Risk averse is the (laughs) phrase I was thinking. A good way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think the Baggins um, tends to rely. I don't think we said this, but I think the Baggins tends to rely more on. Sort of inherited wisdom, passed mm-hmm. down, passed oh, down yeah. wisdom, yeah. which is a very hobbity kind of thing, and and chapter five speaks to that oh, specifically. With, yeah, the, yeah. All the sayings and things that have come down, but we also see that it is the baggins side that um, that keeps the Took side in check, um, partly through his own um, his his fear and his his distance from the world that he's thrust into when when Gandalf and the dwarves show up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think actually kind of forces him to take a step back sometimes and look at things before jumping into things. And that when he, when he stops and thinks about the situation um, before move, before moving or before acting, I think that's when the bag inside is, is, is in is in control, yeah. As opposed to the Tuke side, that tends to just kind of jump in there and riddle and go crazy and stab spiders <laughs> stab and things like spider that. Spider stabbing, yeah. So I think it's I think it's partly a, a function of the fact that he's just more careful, mm-hmm. and there's there's some wisdom in that Prudent. But I think yeah, the, prudent is prudent. A, another... Prudent is a good word, and I think also the Baggins side has just a sense of the way things ought to be mm, that yes. maybe we didn't talk about as much in, in episode eighty seven. I don't think we, we talked about that much we, at all. But you're right. I don't think we did but we talked about things like um giving the arkenstone to to bard and the alvin king is a bagginsy thing to do because Very. he's just trying to avoid trouble um th- that's wise yeah, I, I don't know if he. I don't know if he necessarily does it for the wise reason. I don't know if he does it because it's, you know, the wise thing to do, or if he just does it because he feels like it's the right thing to do. But I feel mm. like there's some wisdom there. There's, yeah, there's a very sort of down to earth Hobbit wisdom in that.
0: Down to earth, another good um, way of putting what, it. Yeah, it, it, what that Sam me... might
1: call a Hobbit sense. Exactly, you know?
0: Hobbit sense.
1: And and I think that's. I think that's partly it. Yeah.
0: I think it is. I don't know if you got any else, anything else. I don't know that, on that, that I have anything else because you said just about everything I was going to say. <laughs> I do think, though, you know, uh, Christopher touched on it when he said, other than the inherited wisdom and the the fund of uh, the fund of wise sayings that he had, I think the fund of wise sayings that he had is is exactly one of the reasons he was uh, the bag side is so wise. I I don't want to discount that in any way because, like you mentioned, inherited wisdom uh, is a big part of of mm-hmm. the bag side and i think inherited wisdom is certainly no less wise just for its inherited nature yeah so um yeah i would i would i would agree you know just by piping in those extra words like risk averse and prudent <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know it has to be the balance because if it's all baggins then you don't get the bravery the you know, the, the right. two have to be in 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 balance The you have to be in balance insane. and i think we we both uh,
1: celebrated the Tukish moments a lot early on. I don't think we ever celebrated the Baggins moments <laughs> that much early on. Mm. And maybe, it, maybe the book is just constructed that way. Yeah, the book is constructed that way. That early on, you see um, the emergence of the Took as a victory for Bilbo, but then later in the book. Um, you start to see when he gets when the Baggins comes back and he balances it out a little bit. That's the true victory for him. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I think the wisdom does show up more as as the story progresses. Uh, Emily had mm-hmm. a had something to say. She just mentioned it in chat, but uh, that she thinks that he was prudent before the journey. The wisdom came from his learning how to uh, how to be how to function in the world outside of the Shire. So. Mm, yeah. uh, good stuff. Maybe, maybe
1: the prudence could come from, uh, could come from you know inherited wisdom, mm-hmm. but true
0: wisdom had to had to come from experience. Yeah, well, you can only know what you experience. There's that. So right. Uh, all right. Well, I think Mark's next.
7: So in the fellowship, in a long expected party, Bilbo uh, is in the process of giving a speech, and he welcomes the Sackville Bagginses back at long last to Bag End. Uh, and then he has that little wordplay uh, thing that he says, I don't know half of you as half as well as I should like. And I like less than half of you half as well as, as you deserve. Now doing the fractions, I I sense, I believe that, that he's leaving out that small portion, the less than half, the remainder. And that's the Sackville Bagginses that deserve, Less liking than he than Bilbo has already is already giving them, so I don't know. What's your opinion? Do you think that Bilbo is being disingenuous with his welcome that he made just a, a couple of pages before, or is it just a little bit of wordplay and word nerdery from Bilbo, and that he's he's glad they're there?
0: Uh, I, I really like that question, and it's a very interesting question because it really requires us to parse that line uh, about half of you and half and blah blah blah. So. Let's look at that line first, okay, Sean. Let's look at that. We've got let me go through it again. I don't know half yeah. of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. so let's start with that first line so so Mark, I just want to make sure i'm so mark is saying that the the s b s are he's the, he's saying the last part of that he's saying that they're the last part of it, but that, that he's um I think there's actually a this is why it was important to oh, parse okay. this because <laughs> The actual question. I know the double negatives. So many double negatives.
1: So half of them are the ones that he doesn't know half as well as he should like, and then less than of less of that remain less than less than half. Then less than half of that remaining, well, I guess you know, forty something percent right. are the ones that he likes half as well as they deserve. Seventy one less. Another, yeah. And, and then there's another, you know, few percent that are the SBs, which are, which deserve the, the Exactly the light. amount of like he that got. It? Okay.
0: I think what happens is there's a little <laughs> bit of confusion because of the phrase. So let's start with the first one, because that's the easy one. I don't know half of you, half as well as I should like. So in theory, what that means is there are 72 people there that he would like to have known better. Right? Right. I don't sure. know half yeah. of you, half as well as I should like. In other words, right. I would have liked to have known 72 of you at least, maybe more, uh, much, much better than I know you. So that's the easy 72 part. people, I wish I knew you better. Right. That's what he's saying. But the second half is the one that I think the double negatives throw everybody off a little bit. And I think that actually might have happened here. I like less than half of you, half as well as you deserve. So let's take, I like less than half of you. So that means we're looking at at least 70 or at most 71 so people.
1: 70, 71 or fewer people. Somewhere between one that, and 71. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but he likes them.
1: That he likes... Let's half as well as they deserve. Half as well as they deserve. They're, so better, they're better people than he gives them credit. Exactly. What basically. he's saying is
0: they actually deserve for him to like them twice as much. Right. And that, I think, is the confusion because it sounds like an insult. And in fact, several of the Hobbit people are trying to work it out whether that was an insult or not. <laughs> so it's half, well, half as well as you deserve. There's, there's, at least seven, there's at least one, and maybe as many as 71 of you, that I should like at least right. twice as much as I do. Are the but Sackville Bagginses? No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's no. I mean, you you got to figure in probably the Sackville Bagginses are part of because in that remaining group, the ones that the ones that um, don't deserve to be liked twice as much, they deserve to be liked exactly as much as Bilbo likes them. Right. So that probably ranges from Frodo, whom he adores and who deserves to be adored, right? To you know, to the, the Sackville Bagginses, who he doesn't like and <laughs> don't deserve to be liked. Um, so, you know, there's probably, let's say, maybe a dozen or so of those. Sure. Um, I'm just throwing out a number. I know, just we're just I, making up know,
0: numbers now because that's where we're at in the show. We're pure speculation mode. That's
1: hilarious, though. Uh, really I'm sure is. the SBs are, are in that group because, yeah, they they definitely, he's saying, I, I don't like you and I don't, you know. Yeah. You deserve exactly the treatment you get from me, basically, is what he's telling everybody from the Sackville Bagginses to Frodo. Um but then there's that other group, isn't there? The 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 ones that deserve to be liked twice as much. I like right. the fact that you've parsed that out. Now, Bilbo is admitting, I haven't I don't really like you people. Yeah. But you're, you're you know, you're probably okay. You're probably okay. <laughs> I I, sh- I like should you. probably
0: like you better than I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is this is Bilbo saying, "Look, I haven't been the nicest person. I haven't I haven't liked all of you the way you you deserve. You half of you, well, less than half of you I like half of, as well as you deserve." <laughs>
1: And to be fair, you know, he came back having experienced a lot of stuff that, that they can't possibly understand. Oh, no, of course. You know, we see we, we talk about that a lot yeah. uh, with Frodo, or we haven't because we haven't really talked about mm-hmm. that yet. But, you know, you see a lot of um, uh, critical discussion of Frodo, the fact that Frodo comes back so changed that he just can't relate to anybody anymore. Um, Bilbo comes back the same. He comes back changed to such a degree. Yeah. It's not quite as, um, it's not quite as uh, damaging to no, him. No, no. It's not nearly as damaging to him. He comes back generally At least not know, at first. Improved. You keep
0: putting on that ring, though. True. <laughs> That's true. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, he comes back generally improved, at least yeah. in, in the short term. And certainly and, in the material um, sense, yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and just generally, but he, I guess what I would say is he still doesn't relate to those people. And no. so, you know, part of it is not just that uh, he's a crotchety old man, uh, but it's also that he's just, he, he can't really relate to them anymore. That's a good and, point. And maybe he just
0: can't really appreciate it. And he realizes the, that and says, well, some the of you- simple hobbit stuff anymore. You deserve yeah. for me to have liked you better, and I didn't. mm mm-hmm. um, Yeah. But that number's 71 or less, so- Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. It definitely is some incredible wordplay uh, by Bilbo, by Tolkien as Bilbo in that particular moment, uh, yeah. and I'm sure there's probably some Tolkien in that where- <laughs> He realizes I'm there's sure. a lot of people that he probably should I'm have sure. liked better. <laughs> I'm sure. Um Sherat, what though. What just doesn't feel that way sometimes. Exactly. Uh, Sherat has uh, something to say here. I'm going to go ahead and unmute you, Sherat?
2: Yeah, so I, uh, your your parsing was very helpful. I've never actually gone through it that way to make it clear to myself. But I think the way I've always read it is that there's all the double negatives that make it confusing. But then... That Bilbo's not just being a crotchety old man, or he's admitting his faults. I think he's actually being quite nasty at this moment to the Hobbits, because mm. the the entire party is a kind of nasty joke on everyone. Well, yeah, the gross, the one gross thing. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, so I don't know, though. I mean, I, well, there, there's probably an element
1: of him uh, him using this language because he knows they won't understand it.
0: You're right. There is a, a condescension knows, to this, for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and obviously they, they spend some time trying to, trying to figure it out. Well, right, he, the, he knows exactly what he's trying to say. He, he knows that he can insult a, a big portion of them and then nev- never really figure it and out. And yet I don't think – so. It, yet,
0: when we parse it, we realize he's not insulting anybody. This is a compliment. He's saying there's a bunch of you out here, half of you, that I wish I knew better, right? And there's another little less than half of you that I've not liked as well as I should. It's not so much a double negative it's the it's words like half half of you half as well right less yeah. than half of you half as well very confusing um so it, it's not so much that they contradict each other you just have to understand that the 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 in each of those pairs of halves the first half is identifying the quantity of people and the second half has to do with how he treats them either he doesn't know them well enough or he doesn't like them well enough um so I, I don't, but I, I but I do I, see the condescension. I, do think, for I sure. do think
1: Sherrod has a, I do think Sherrod has a point though about just
0: the, just messing with. Them, oh yeah, yeah, basically. yeah. The condescension. You know? The I know what yeah. I'm saying. You're not going to be able to figure this out because you're a bunch of bumpkins. Definitely, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. no doubt there.
2: And I guess an element of what I was saying was, uh, what he's the literal meaning. Once you parse out his sentence, is not insulting necessarily. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I, I see think what you that mean he the, is. He's ironically saying that, that what he means is counter to what Mm. he has said. Because, well, he could have liked them half as well as they deserve, but he didn't. He didn't do that. You're right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's a very good point, actually. That's a very good
7: point.
1: That is true. The fact that they deserve to be liked more than he likes them doesn't
0: mean that he wishes he did
7: like them
0: that much. You're right. And I think there is... yeah, I was getting caught up on the literality, the literal meaning of the words, which, of course, is not an insult. But he's right. There's an ironic nature to this that it's not just condescending. It's basically telling you, yeah, I, I don't like you. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's a bunch of you that, yeah, and, you probably deserve to be liked more, but eh, no, that can't be asked. <laughs> and,
1: and I would say that Christopher has pointed out in the chat that there has been a whole lot of wine consumed at this point. The <laughs> that is a very good point. So there's – we probably need to give that more credit. Yeah. Than, than we usually do yeah that's a very good point <laughs> james you're up
9: okay uh well I'll, i'm will i gonna do one little quick comment uh real quick and then i got a softball question for you <laughs> we like those yay um okay so a quick comment is uh it's actually believed y'all were speaking about beowulf earlier how it's a uh, um a christian poem but it's kind of based in pagan lands and with some pagan people mm-hmm. Um, it's like it's a retelling actually, of a pagan myth, but yeah, by a Christian poet, yeah. It's actually believed, because, I mean, they use a lot of Christian language, and they occasionally say, oh, praise God, and things like that in right. the story. But um, there's, you know, some belief that it was, well, I mean, not belief, almost confirmation that it was originally a pagan story, and that, sure. for example, mm-hmm. Grendel was a was originally a troll rather than just a weird monster okay. um, going by, okay. like... um early germanic and norse mythology and sure. um okay the dragon at the end of the story was actually supposed to be based on fafnir and then rather than spewing mm. or rather than breathing fire it actually spewed poison or venom okay it was more traditional for the germanic style dragons um a fire breathing mm. dragon is a more christianized version okay um, mm.
1: so okay. having said that um Alan I believe it was But that that is interesting that you say that uh, especially about Grendel because yeah that's something that I, I I don't remember Beowulf that well I I should it's been a little while I don't while know for half me. as well as I should like <laughs> um, but uh, but I do remember that uh, Grendel and that is he's described as a descendant of Cain yeah um, yeah and so there you know there it's there's a very Christian— Yeah you're Oregon definitely story. right I mean that's...
0: you're on the right track James I mean it's when when we when yeah. we've mentioned that Christian take on it it's it's definitely a retelling of an ancient pagan myth yes. by a, at that time, you know, contemporaneous modern poet right. who happens to be Christian right. and telling it more importantly, less, less important than the faith of the uh, poet is the faith of his audience. And he is writing it for a Christian yeah. audience. Uh, so he is adapting an old pagan myth for, for Christian times, um, you know, in, in a, a new, a newly Christianized, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon world. But so go ahead. Yeah. Now that we've got the, the, so good clarifications there. the, Thank uh, you. the ground laid properly, uh, the groundwork done, James, what's, uh, what's the actual question?
9: So this is my softball. It Doesn't really have anything to do with that. But um, oh, nice, <laughs> Alan. I
0: I believe you, uh, you used to play Lord of the Rings online. I I did. I still actually have a character on there. Actually, several. But I've I very rarely get a chance to get on. Uh, I will say, however, that we do now have a prancing pony podcast kinship on the uh, Landerval server. So uh, you know, reach out to us on the on the page if you're interested in that. <laughs> Absolutely. If I
9: get a chance to get back on again, but uh, my yeah. question is actually. What would be, what is your favorite
0: storyline or quest line that you may oh, have goodness. done? Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Now, keep in mind, I haven't, when I stopped playing regularly, um, the Mirkwood expansion had just come out. It was the, the, the regular, the first Mirkwood expansion. I, I, I hesitated yes. because yeah. there was a more recent Northern Mirkwood uh, that, that's come out that's like very high level, but yeah, the, the Mirkwood expansion Mirkwood had just expansion,
9: come out. Southern yeah. Mirkwood expansion, that was, uh, I think that was part of Rise
0: of, Rise of Isengard. I think. Thing. That sounds about right because, yeah, Isengard was next. Uh, so, you know, that was that was several years ago, so it's been a while. But I really – I'm trying to remember some of those storylines. I love the ranger stuff, uh, when you know, helping the rangers uh, accomplish things that the ranger – I can't remember his name now that lived just north of Brie and he sent you on a bunch of different missions. Uh, the rangers that were stationed up at a numinous uh, and, and, you know, the um, – Yeah, uh, numinous by was Fornost. my zone. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely I really enjoyed that a lot. Um it, it's such a rich a rich story, uh the whole thing. I mean, even the side missions have a lot of really rich story to them. Uh the because world has a lot of
9: chestnuts a, hidden in different places. Yeah, there really
0: like are. There are a ton of little pieces hidden here and there. It really is. And, you know, you just get past the the fetch quests and things like that and you know, you start looking at it and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, definitely hoping to get back into it, and we had a great time talking with uh, Professor Drought about that. Actually, a
1: pretty you know good lengthy chunk of our interview. I keep hearing that it is um, it's just such a faithful um, adaptation. You
0: can tell that they they cared. There's a lot of attention to detail, yeah. uh, and the environments are are really stunning in that regard. They're they're no longer you know graphically modern by any stretch. The engine's old, uh, and it shows. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, but it certainly you know i think it's beautiful but it's beautiful in a in a different way than than you might expect it's today. beautiful
1: because you're you're transported to middle exactly,
0: earth exactly you really are yeah on um, yeah. uh, some of those moments especially early on as you wander through the lone lands or as you you know get to the last uh, the last ford and you know or the last bridge and then you get to the ford i mean it's it it just feels right Excellent. So. absolutely
9: yeah the very early yeah. ver- uh, additions uh, expansions were very close to important parts in the books and um, yes they were very true to the lore even you know mm-hmm. like for example a lot of mmos they use you know magic to heal you where whereas In you know Lord of the Rings Online, they use you know like the minstrel minstrel. plays a song, and suddenly you're more Mm. emboldened and more willing to keep fighting because they use morale. Or a a captain can
0: can shout a a particular cry that will Mm -hmm. uh, restore your morale. Yeah, which is very much more
9: along the lines of you know the Lord of Lord of Rings mythos rather than you know a typical RPG.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a very. They really try to be lore faithful, and I've I've enjoyed it. I. Really wish that I could get back into it to the extent that I'd like. But unfortunately, uh, you know, time, we, <laughs> Sean and I can tell you, we put a little it's, more time into this show I, than we ever thought we would. Huh? <laughs> truly, truly. And and I,
1: honestly, I have been, I would love to to have the time to, to play oh, yeah. it because I have never done so. Um, but I have played MMOs in the past. It's been many years. Evercrack, dude. Um, Evercrack. Yeah. Ever, yeah. Everquest, the, the original Everquest back in like 2000 to. I don't know, maybe 2003 or something. That was when that was my time for MMOs.
0: Did um, you have to use a I dial-up modem
1: how. then, Sean? <laughs> I did have a dial-up <laughs> for a little <laughs> <laughs> while. Yeah. EverQuest was EverQuest was the reason I got DSL back DSL. in like 2000 2001. <laughs> yep. But that's awesome. Yeah, stuff. I I I don't see myself having time to play it soon. But maybe no, someday. I
0: know me neither. Unfortunately, but. Hopefully, uh, hopefully again, one of these days, uh, hopefully they'll still be around in six years or so when the show's done and I can spend time again. hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, I think the last question, uh, you said it was Tim, right? It was the only uh, hand right. that we've we not get, seen. We get, that's right. Uh, welcome, Tim. How are you?
6: Very well. Thank you. Good. These have been great contributions tonight.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I think uh, it's, it's, our contributions been have been fun. equaled by everybody in the in the audience tonight. We've had some really great yeah. insights, I think, and- it uh, just made for a, a really great conversation. Um, Agreed.
6: One of the things I'd uh, written a little email to Ellen um, back in, uh, a week or two ago was just commenting on um, how important you know the balances you know that uh, in life are. The, hmm you know the willingness to explore but the the you know the need to be able to come home or yes. you know the ability to mm-hmm. to to be open to uh, you know people of different backgrounds um um you know versus you know you know just being you know afraid of the other um or judging the other harshly you know um you know for being different or 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 foreign and, you know, how at the same time, there's different perspectives. Like, like you said, you know, being wary of you know, of others is not necessarily inherently bad. Or right. being overbold, you know, can can have its own problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, right. just the way that the different ways these different life lessons seem to be played out, um, mm. uh, uh, it, it was to me something that I always found meaningful. And, and when I come back to it, it makes me feel... Um, like grateful, and you know, like like yeah. I like I'm taking things away um, uh, yeah. when I reflect yeah. on it, um, and I also find I guess one of the comments I wanted to, or questions I wanted to make is, do you ever um, find yourself pausing periodically and just thinking about um, the the other meta narrative of you know this being um uh being uh billable writing you know later on in life you know and being transposed to mm. you know through shared story over time right. um and updated you know mm-hmm. from you know like you talked about some of the things where it was updated through intervening years and maybe some of the touches of things are a little bit different than originally there um uh and I think even um but like I, I guess it spoke to me for example when he talked about um commenting in the very end of the story about how he was judged as odd and indifferent, and, 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 and you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. um, there's a sort of a, it seems to be a, a you know, a, in my head when I read that, um, a sort of a, a gist that of, of of you know, sort of a, a sense of a little bit of a pain in there, you mm-hmm. know, an acceptance and, yeah. and knowledge that it was okay mm-hmm. that he's now different, but also a sort of sense of wishing that he could, he, you know there was a way to bridge some of those gaps that are yeah. still there I don't know because if he can't sense connect sense. to them anymore right yeah yeah and i guess i just moments like that i see all of a sudden this other layer of a story upon a story that just adds depth you know mm-hmm. complexity to this this work do you ever see yourself like all of a sudden pausing and thinking about that meta story as well that's a good question i, th- I think yes. we do yeah um.
0: Yes. All the
6: time. Yeah. You have to put it in context,
0: <laughs> yeah. and and the context is that frame mm-hmm. narrative. You really do, uh, especially yeah. anything that is Bilbo directly speaking about Bilbo. You know, um, uh, those moments, especially at the end of the the last chapter, the fact that he didn't that it didn't bother him, that he really basically didn't care, uh, that that he lost the respect of everybody, and I think that mm-hmm. maybe really in turn does kind of fuel. That that line that Mark was asking about that we see in the Lord of the Rings about liking people laugh as well as they deserve, uh, yeah. you know, there is a little bit of that. But uh, what do you think, Sean? Yeah,
1: I I agree. I I I find myself thinking about the frame narrative a lot, mm-hmm. uh, increasingly more these days. <laughs> yeah. Um. I I find myself going back to the history of Middle Earth for um for insight into how Tolkien might have actually wanted to include more of a frame narrative with the Silmarillion Mm, mm -hmm. than, you know, we end up getting, um, in the, in what's, you know, what's published. Right outside of the histories Um, of Middle Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is a bigger topic than I think we can really dive into right now. But, um, but I think that, um, I think that you can see there's a lot of Tolkien himself in Bilbo. Yes. uh, Which is not to say that it's allegorical, but I think that, you know, as Tolkien is writing about this character who, um, who, who saw this world of middle earth and, and tried to write about it. Um, I think, I think Tolkien sort of, um, sort of identified with that to some degree, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say entirely, but definitely to a degree as, as he was sort of the, the person who, who saw this secondary world and decided to write about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a lot of that. Um, and I do think that when we see those, uh, those moments of, um, you, you know, when you, the, those moments when you're able to step back, whether it's the very end of, of The Hobbit or whether it's the like the note on the Shire records mm, from the prologue mm-hmm. to, to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. um, Yeah, I really love those moments. And and I feel like you can see a little bit of Tolkien.
0: um, I think you're right. Yeah. Peeking a, through a, a little bit. A little yeah.
1: bit of peeking through a little bit. And I think sometimes um, sometimes apologizing a little bit (laughs) for what he's created and sometimes not apologizing at all, saying this is what I've done, you know, um, take it or leave it. So I don't know if that answers the question, Tim, (laughs) but I definitely find myself thinking about that frame narrative a lot. And yeah, yeah, and I would say that there are characters throughout the legendarium that echo uh, Tolkien in in different ways, um, whether it's somebody like, um, you know, Owlette as a sub creator Mm -hmm. uh, or Bilbo as just a writer. So, yeah.
0: Well, great discussion, everyone. Thank you. I mean, really, thank you all for joining us tonight for Questions After Nightfall. We hope that each of you can join us again for the next one, which will probably take place in September. Uh, and folks listening at home, we hope you will all join us again next week for a very special episode.
1: Yeah, I want to just, first of all, echo um, Alan's thank you. Uh, Thank Mm, you all mm -hmm. so much for joining us. Um, And and thanks to everybody listening. I I hope that everyone listening has enjoyed this as much as we have, Um, despite some technical issues. I think uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. (laughs) Um, And and a very special thank you to everyone in our Patreon family who have made special events like this
0: one possible. Absolutely. Don't forget that next week is the final episode of Season 2. That's going to be Episode ninety where we'll be interviewing Dr. Verlin Flieger about her foundational book, Splintered Light, which is an absolute must-read uh, if you want to tackle the yes, Silmarillion especially. Uh, her new essay yep. collection, There Would Always Be a Fairy Tale, and some other projects she's worked on, including the Tolkien Studies uh, Journal and some editions, critical editions of several of Tolkien's own works. And then after that, we'll take a brief hiatus for a few weeks, and then
1: we will be returning mm-hmm. in mid-August with Season 3, and episode 91, which is going to be an interview with Dr. Tom Shippey. Oh, my. We're going to be talking to him about the road to Middle Earth and J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Century, as well as a little bit of uh, Tolkien tangential medievalism <laughs> in his new book, <laughs> Laughing Shall I Die? Lives and Deaths of the Great Vikings. Absolutely.
0: Uh, boy, I got to tell you, talking to the two of them, that it's nerve wracking. I mean, as, as nervous as I was for Corey a Olson, bit. I'm going to be a bit. bit more nervous for them. Yeah. Uh, these are two of our heroes, for sure. So we're looking forward to that. Absolutely,
1: And there's going to be so much to talk about. Oh, and We'll uh, have to have them on more than be, once. There's yeah. no way
0: we can get it all done in an yes. hour and a half. But um, folks, Agreed. while we are off, we will still be around on social media. Uh, Barnum will still be bringing us the mail, so keep sending in your questions to him. And most importantly, we will still be working on several things related to the podcast, all with a, an eye towards making things even better for season three when we start the Fellowship of the Ring.
1: Yeah, I think this this time off is going to give us a a little bit of a chance to prepare for this upcoming season mm-hmm. more thoroughly. Yeah, absolutely. And we're we're really excited about doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that I think that's our plan to do that from here on yeah. out between every season. Yeah. Uh, we got to keep it fresh and interesting, and <laughs> I think that means sometimes even Alan and I need a, a break to to think about what comes next. Yeah. And you know, hey, a break from each other too.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had to let that out, you know. No. <laughs> I did. I did. Well, folks, if you have any questions about, uh, you know, the start of season three or our hiatus or anything like that, just let us know on social media or by emailing Barnum at theprancingponypodcast.com. And while we're
1: not going to ask you for anything, if you'd like to see how we're doing towards our Patreon goals, you can see them at patreon.com
0: slash prancingponypod. Well, of course, we also want to give our usual very special shout out to our patrons at the KeerDance Contribution Tier, some of whom are in the virtual studio with us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia. Tamson in Minnesota, Dawn in Vancouver Island, and Emily in Texas. Thank you all so very much. Thank you all
1: so much for your support and just for the time you spend listening to us, participating in the show,
0: um, participating on social media, and just making our podcast better. Thank Absolutely. you. And you do. You make this show better. Folks, that almost wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. As always, thank you again for joining us. And while you're waiting for our interview with Dr. Flieger or while we're on hiatus we invite you to please check out the official library tab on our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. We've got links to everything from inexpensive paperbacks to some really good stuff for your Tolkien collection.
1: And if you wouldn't mind, head over to iTunes for us. Leave us a review. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, that helps us find new listeners. That means more great questions for Barlamin, more discussion <laughs> yeah. on social media, uh, maybe more guests to the next questions after nightfall, and <laughs> all right. those things
0: that make the Prancing Pony Podcast community great. And thanks to those of you who have, by the way. Of course, we do still read every one of them, uh, even if it's hard to believe what they say, but we do read them. Uh, and we're featuring one a week on our social media networks on hashtag Thankful Thursdays. So make sure you never miss an episode of the show by subscribing through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.
1: And thanks to everyone who's become part of our social media circles. We set out to start a Tolkien conversation that everybody could be a part of, and that's why we have the online common room on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast. On Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod and also on Instagram
0: at Prancing Pony Pod. there you go and one last thing as always don't forget to send your thoughts comments and most of all your best questions to stump the host of the Prancing Pony Podcast to Bartleman at theprancingponypodcast.com and we'll try to get them into our next episode well no matter how much time we've had it's still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners and such excellent and admirable question askers this time But until next time, farewell, friends.